pray for the needs of the world. The needs of our congregation here, the needs of the broader church, the needs of a world, even those who don't recognize and honor God. Because we realize our status as those who have been redeemed by Christ is that we have access to the Almighty God that unbelievers don't possess. And so we come because we care about this world that God created. We care even about those as of yet, don't embrace God. Because we know we couldn't embrace God unless He touched our hearts. And so with great humility and love, we unite our hearts together. I will lead us, but pray in your hearts silently along with me. Let's join together. Oh Lord, we just sang that we trust your word and give you thanks. And the choir saying, if we ask the Lord, He will answer. And Lord, we know those are not vain words because of who You are and what You promise. Lord, You revealed Yourself to Moses saying, You are the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And you are the God who said to your people through your prophet Ezekiel, I will take away your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. I will write my word upon your hearts so you may walk in my ways. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that we have a great high priest, even Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens and now offers our prayers wrapped in His righteousness. And so, Lord, we know that what we pray now is not vain words that just rise to the ceiling, but they go to the very throne of heaven. And the God who created all things hears and answers according to our need and according to what is best for us. So, Lord, give us greater faith. Faith to lift up our prayers and faith to trust You. That You're a God who is willing and able to bless His people. Oh Lord, so much of our lives are filled with doubt. Forgive us. So much of our lives are filled with waywardness, selfishness. Forgive us. We thank You that Jesus Christ has done everything. And we stand in His righteousness alone. And so we hear from an Almighty God who is also a Heavenly Father. You are forgiven. And we come now as children. Lord, we pray for our world. We think about our nation, we think about our community, we think about the world in general, and we know there are so many who live without you. We watch the news and we see the spread of Islam, a religion that denies the work of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, stop the evil. 
and cause us to have hearts of love and compassion for those who are still in the grips of their own sin. May we be the ones who proclaim the good news that freedom and salvation is in Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we can be saved. Lord, we pray specifically that You will give our political leaders wisdom as they deal with the threat of the Islamic State. And Lord, we pray that You will cause the evil to stop, the horrible beheadings and persecution and brutality. Lord, make it stop. Give strength to Your people who are being persecuted for their faith. Strengthen them under trial. We thank You that You have spared us. We pray Your blessing and strength and comfort to them. Lord, earlier we sang, Fear not, I am with Thee. Oh, be not dismayed. And that is Your promise to us. And yet we look at the news and we see the Ebola crisis in West Africa and we hear about it coming into the United States and Lord, our hearts struggle with fear. Lord, as we have those fears, may we turn our eyes to You and know the blessing and the comfort that comes. Oh Lord, I pray for the congregation. As we look over the prayers and praise requests, there are many needs. Many who need comfort. We pray that You will give it. Many who need healing, we pray that You will touch them. Or many of us have confusion about what we need to do or how we need to live or decisions that need to be made. For some of us, our hearts are, are heavy. Oh Lord, be the one that lifts up our hearts as we more and more see You Father, I pray for this congregation as they are going through a pulpit search and all the ups and downs that can come with that. Lord, I pray for those on the committee that You will give them persevering strength. And Lord, I pray for the new interim pastor who will come. You will bless him and bless the ministry of this congregation. Bless the session and the diaconate. Lord, give them strength and wisdom as they lead this congregation. Father, thank You for what You're doing here at Lake Oconee. Continue that work and bless. Lord, now as we consider Your Word from the psalmist, we pray that You will soften our hearts and open our eyes to see the wonderful things You have for us in Your Word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Some of you may have noticed it happens on the television news. It also happens on the radio news. Uh, they, the newscaster will have what they call a hook, where they'll say, well, I've got this revelation. There are these, these revelations... 
stay tuned in five minutes, I'll tell you about them. You know, and then you're, they're trying to get you to keep listening. And sometimes it works for me, sometimes it just makes me mad, and I change the channel anyway. I don't know how you respond, but it's that hook of we have revelation. And so the idea is we're going to know something that you didn't know before. Well, you need to understand that Psalm 19 is about revelation. And specifically, it's God's revelation. As you look at this psalm, there are 14 verses. We're just going to look at the last 7 through 14. But those first, 1 through 6, deal with how God reveals himself in creation. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, then the part 2 of the psalm, which is what we will focus on, is where this revelation that happens in creation, God gives a greater revelation that is written. One of the things I have in my library is a book. It's a commentary from the late 1800s, or really it was written in the mid-1800s, and that book belonged to my great-great-grandfather, who was a pastor in West Georgia. And that book is very old now, of course, and there are handwritten notes in the margins that were notes from my great-great-grandfather. So you can imagine that I cherish that book because of those notes. Well, you need to understand as you come to Psalm 19, what God is presenting to us is a revelation of Himself. And so we're called to cherish this. Psalm 19, we'll begin in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Years ago in the early 1990s, I read a newspaper interview of a woman who had been my former youth minister, and I was, grew up in a different denomination, and she had been our youth minister, and now she was moving, she had been promoted to be pastor of a church in the Birmingham area. And so the Birmingham News came and interviewed her, and specifically wanted to know her views on ministry, and especially the views that she was a woman minister, and that was unusual in that particular conference of the church. And so she was responding, and one of the questions they asked her is her view on Scripture, and she said this, Many people worship 
the Bible. In fact, she used a term she called Bible idolatry. She said, I worship God. Now her view, which is shared by many, even our culture today, is the Bible is a wonderful book. And you should respect it as far as you want to. But if it ever you find that it's not really fitting in your life or not really agreeing with your own views, we'll put it aside and find something else. Because the Bible is not really the Word of God. Now, as I read that, I, thought to, I shook my head. I thought to myself, that was part of the reason why I left that denomination and now... I'm in a denomination that upholds. We are committed to the Scriptures, is what we say. But things aren't perfect even in the Presbyterian Church in America. Because even in our own circles, in our own congregations, the Bible is under assault. Oh yeah, we have our public statements like we're committed to Scripture, we cherish the Word of God. But what happens in our practice, we neglect it. We disregard it. We find something else. You know, in effect, we are blind to what the psalmist sees. This psalm is attributed to David, and the psalmist sees that God has given us this great gift. It's, it's a revelation of himself. And so there's this call through David us to treasure what God has given. We treasure the Word of God and declare it to be precious because it is His Word. It's not His Word because we somehow agree that it it is His Word. And as one theologian used to say, we have to go from standing on Scripture to standing under Scripture that it affects and shapes our lives. God's Word through David here challenges us that we treasure the Word, we treasure the content, we treasure the character, and we also treasure the effect it has on our lives. We treasure the content. Verses 7 through 9, there are six words used to describe this written revelation, and these six words are very comprehensive. Now, I read from the English Standard Version. You may have had a different translation, and some of the words were, were different. The the idea is these are words that are used to describe a whole range of the beauties of Scripture. And some of them are very nuanced, slight changes in the meaning of the Hebrew word. But what it is, is this. That first one, the law of the Lord that you have there in verse 7. That's a general term, the idea of God's message to mankind. And then you have uh, some translations say statutes, others say testimonies. What this is, is what God declares to be true. And then you have precepts or commands. These are the orders or guidelines from one who has all wisdom and authority. You think about it. When you were about to do something, you say, I would just like to know what a really great expert says about this. Well, whatever that expert would say would be what the psalmist is talking about here. These precepts, these commands... And what the idea is, is that God created mankind. God created this world. And so he has a way it should work based on how he created it. 
that's what he gives us in the Word. And then there's that interesting use in verse 9, the fear of the Lord. What he's saying there is that which triggers awe and humbles us about what God says. And then these rules, or, or some translations say ordinances, these are the judgments of the supreme judge. Now, if you summarize all of this, what it's saying, all that you wanted to know about God, about creation, about the way life is supposed to work, it's either expressly set down in Scripture or may be deduced from what is presented in Scripture. It is true. We will come into situations of our lives where we can't go, all right, here I have this decision. Let me go look in Scripture for something that speaks exactly to that. No, this Scripture doesn't work that way. But God has given us ways to deal with our issues, even our interpersonal issues. How do we deal with those things? And so what we can do is we take the principles in the Word and bring them into the situation, and then we know how God wants us to act and what we, God wants us to believe. See, that's what we call, when theologians say, the, of the sufficiency of Scripture. That Scripture is sufficient for all that we need to live. We don't need somebody to write an extra book. We don't need somebody to say, oh, I have a word of knowledge or a prophecy about your life. We don't need that because God has given us what we need in the book. But what do we do? We disregard. Years ago, I saw a newsletter from a church, and it was announcing a local Bible study. And it was one of these Bible studies. That it was a ladies' Bible study, and they were it was supposed to be invite your neighbor to come and it'd be a community-type thing. And it's interesting because in the promotion for this event, it said this, This study will be a spiritual journey with reading and sharing and sometimes Bible study. The, the name of the study was Bibles and Bagels. But their first study was going to be a book of a woman who wrote a journal while she was living with a group of monks. And so the, the blessing was to come as they read of that woman's experience with the monks. Now, don't get me wrong. Book studies are fine. They're not evil. But if you're wanting to know how to live as one who follows God, you need to use His revelation. He gave it to you. Why do you want to disregard it? Well, sometimes we disregard because it's just, it's just too hard. <laughs> I mean, I get bogged down in those Old Testament books and I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce the names. I don't, know, I don't understand these places. Well, part of it is, you know, we need to spend as much time working on understanding the Bible as we do on our golf or tennis game. Amen? <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a boo. I heard the boo back there. God didn't say the Bible would be easy. But He said He gave it to us for our benefit. And so we have to engage it. 
we treasure what he gives, that, that content. We seek time to study it. We learn to read it and apply it. I had an incident with my daughter this weekend, well, this past week. She woke up on Friday and I went into her room to say goodbye as I was heading to work. And she was watching Netflix on her tablet. And I just, just casually said, honey, have you read your Bible today? Well, there was a sheepish grin. <laughs> and then we had a slight discussion because I knew what I was going to be preaching today. I said, honey... God wants to talk to you. Listen to me. Now, I'd love to say she put her tablet down and picked up her Bible. I've still got work to do. But that's it. We need to treasure the content. But we also treasure the character. Verses 7 through 9 describe not only content, which is the noun, but also there's this adjective which describes the character. And many times this is under the greatest attack. There we just don't really embrace what the Word says about itself. Many people do agree that the Bible reveals God, but we're just not sure that we accept the character, the qualities of God. It says it's perfect. What it means by that is Scripture is without flaw or error. In our theological circles, we say Scripture is inerrant, which means there's no error. There's nothing that God says that's not true and we never... Scripture is speaking to an issue. God does not deceive us. But then it also is sure or trustworthy that the truth statements that are presented in Scripture are wholly reliable. It's, God doesn't say, all right, I want to tell you this, but actually this is true. God does not work like that because, it's, again, it reveals His character, which is always truthful and always trustworthy. It's right. The precepts will never lead us astray. It's, it's pure. The commands benefit us, improve our view of life. It's clean, or some translations have pure, which means there's no alloy. There's nothing mixed with it. That, so that, therefore, if you're going through a trial and embracing it, the trial may still be hard, but you have the ability to endure. The, the Scripture will, in the end, be found to be trustworthy. It's true and righteous. It means it's solid. There's no hint of evil. So here's the summary. All that you could ever want as a guide for your life is in Scripture. Now, my wife and I, as we drove here today, <coughs> we used our GPS. But, you know, I remember a time where we had the GPS. It was early on in our GPS experience where... And some of you may have experienced this, where we were going to a place, we had a general idea of where it was, but we plugged in the, the address, and then we followed it religiously, turn here, turn here, go this way. And then we came, and there was that little flag saying that you had reached your destination, and the flag was in somebody's backyard. And we were going to a Boy Scout camp. Well, I knew that this was a residence and they wouldn't have a Boy Scout camp in their backyard. So we backtracked, went back to the highway, went down one more exit, got off, and as we came off the exit, there was a sign pointing to the Boy Scout camp. We drove down, followed the arrows, found the Boy Scout camp. And the interesting thing was, the Boy Scout property was so large that the edge of the property butted up against that residence. So, was the GPS right or wrong? It wasn't trustworthy. 
See, what the psalmist is saying is Scripture won't do that to you. Scripture will lead you in the right path because Scripture meets God's standard. The qualities are also measured by the value. You see this in verse 10. Scripture is better than the purest gold, sweeter than the highest quality honey. The question is, why don't we believe this? What do we do? We toss Scripture in with the latest self-help book. Or sometimes you present the some, you know, ten steps, seven steps. I think they're down to five steps now is all people want. And then sometimes there's a little proof text that Scripture's added to it, but it doesn't always connect with what the meaning is. And so what ends up, we have Bibles that lie on our coffee tables and bedstands, and they look very nice. But does it hold the same place in our lives? The character of Scripture, and all these beautiful things, and its content, and its qualities, its character, it flows out of the character of God. We cherish Scripture because it points to the Word made flesh. And so, how God thinks and how God acts is presented to us in Scripture. And because of what He has done and who He is, that's why we embrace it. We treasure the content. We treasure the character. But we go a next step and we treasure the effect. Scripture, theologians say this, Scripture is a means of God's grace. And what we mean by that is just like when you eat, the food is on the fork and the food benefits you and the fork is what the instrument In the same way, the fork is the means by which you get the benefit of the food. Here's the idea. Scripture is a means of God's grace so that God's grace comes into your life and the instrument by which He does that is the Scripture. It's something that is unique in all of our experience as we interact with God, that God uses Scripture as a tool to bless us in our lives. What does it do for us? Verse 7, it says it revives the soul. Uh, the image I like to picture here is yesterday I was working in the yard and, and you're, you're hot and sweaty and, and doing all the work and then you come in, you take a shower and it just refreshes you. Well, that's what Scripture does. And I think about the past. In times where I've struggled with depression or struggled with just hardships, hard circumstances, many times I go to Psalm 42, 43. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so troubled within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. And it's as if just reading those words, God just takes my heart and lifts it up. God lifts up my head just by reading the Word. How does that happen? I don't know. It's God's work. But He revives our soul. Verse 7, second part, it, it, it makes us wise. Now by this, it doesn't mean it raises your IQ. What it's talking about is as you read the Word, as you bring the Word into your life, you begin to develop, God develops within you the mind of God. That you think God's thoughts after Him. Verse 8, it gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes, makes our lives brighter. We're even going through difficult times, we're able to endure because our eyes are fixed on a great God. And then you have verse 11. 
It's a source of warning. There's a story told about Martin Luther. That there was a time when Martin Luther was in danger. There was a man who wanted to poison him and kill Luther. But there was an acquaintance of the man who wanted to kill Luther, who also knew Luther, and sent Luther a picture of the man who was going to kill him. And so Luther knew what this man looked like and was able to avoid him. One Bible author took that story and applied it to what Scripture does. Scripture says, this will harm you. Outbursts of anger will harm your relationships. Lust, sensuality will harm relationships and destroy you. It's a warning so that you avoid it. It's a testimony of the grace of God. The Puritan John Bunyan says this, This book will keep you from sin. Or sin will keep you from this book. See, all of these benefits, these effects, they flow from the salvation of Christ. Here's the idea. God changes our heart. Even as Ezekiel says, He takes away our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, writes His Word on our hearts. And so the idea is that the Holy Spirit uses the Scripture to continue to develop us in developing the character of God within us. So we treasure this effect, what it does for us, but also we treasure what, we, what it moves us to do. Verse 12, a self-examination, where there's repentance from known sin, and, and we even know that we can't remember all that we do in opposition to God. And that repentance leads to faith. This is the great benefit, as we see there in verse 14. Sometimes you read the Word, And you see its perfection. You see where it wants us to go. And you say, that's not me. I rebel against sin. I don't heed the warning. Well, where's the comfort? You know, David knew that. And yet David writes there in verse 14, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word leads us to Christ. Verse 13 and 14, in effect, you say, Lord, save me from my own sin and make my whole life acceptable to you. Scripture shows us our need for a Savior, but it also shows us that a Savior is given. The Word of God is more than just another book. No, it's true. We don't worship it. We worship the God who reveals Himself through it. And so we cherish His Word. Make it a priority in life. It is the very Word of God. He shares His character and He uses it. Robert Rayburn was the first president of Covenant College and Covenant Seminary, where I got my Master of Divinity. Dr. Rayburn was a man who took Deuteronomy 6 seriously. He taught his children, and he would talk about the Word when he went in and when he went out, when he rose up, when he sat down, when he laid down. 
scripture he presented to his family was the actual Word of God, a guide for life, a means for God's grace in their life, and it revealed the Savior. All of Dr. Rayburn's kids went into full-time ministry except one, Bentley. Bentley was an Air Force officer. Retired just in the last couple of years as a two-star general. Got his commission through the Air Force Academy, graduating in 1975. And he excelled at the academy. He was a very good student. In fact, his senior year, he was the wing commander for all of the cadets. He was their number one commander. And so as you had that in his life there at the academy and also in his life as a commissioned officer, he had great authority in a very worldly environment. As he graduated, he, the, those who are in command positions at the Air Force Academy are allowed to wear a silver saber as part of their status as cadet commanders. And sometimes the, the graduates will actually give those sabers to people who they honor and respect. Bentley Rayburn gave the saber to his father with an inscription. And Dr. Rayburn took that savior, saber and put it out and displayed it with the, so you could read the inscription which said, To my father the one who gave me the sword of the Spirit. See, God has given us more than just a book. He's given us Himself. The Word and the Word made flesh. May our lives reflect the meaning, the message of verse 14. Oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's respond to God's word as we stand together and sing, When I survey the wondrous cross, remembering as the word of God who gave himself for us, we will sing the first and second stanza. I remind you the tune will be to 324.